0: I understand, I
1: could have had class. I could have been a contender. Hulk, me. Smash. Mrs. Robinson, you're trying to seduce me. Here's
0: Johnny. what do you want
1: do motherfucker. You never go ask him out. Now, what is so damn funny? And here we
0: go. We will not go quietly into the night. We will not vanish without
2: a fight. Force will be with you.
0: Almost the truth! You can't handle the truth! down everybody! Showtime! Hey, everybody. Welcome to another edition of the For Real Movie Club. I am your host, Chris the Dace Man Dace, and joining me on tonight's panel, the one and only Tony Mango!
2: Woo! It's me.
0: And the other one and only, which kind of makes them all twos, Mike Payton! I'm definitely not number two. Tony's
1: two. Oh, just end,
0: true. <laughs> I
2: thought I was Steve. Who's Steve? <laughs> Number two.
1: I'm Steve.
0: You're Steve? We're all Steve. And on tonight's... <laughs> One and only Steve. <laughs> One and only Steve, we'll be talking about Thanksgiving-themed movies. Hat tip to Sam Lassio. The first movie we'll be talking about <laughs> is Plane, Trains, and Automobiles which is a 1987 American comedy film written, produced, and directed by John Hughes. The film stars Steve Martin as Neil Page, a high-strung marketing executive who meets Del Griffith, who's portrayed by John Candy, an internally optimistic, overly talkative, and clumsy shower curtain ring salesman who seems to live in a world governed by a different set of rules. They share a three-day odyssey of misadventures trying to get Neil home to Chicago from New York City in time for the Thanksgiving dinner with his family. Tony, what are your initial thoughts on planes, trains, and automobiles?
2: I was a little bit disappointed. Um, I've heard this movie talked about for you know years and years now as like a classic, and I went into it expecting it to be something that I would really like laugh my ass off in. And really, I was kind of uh, just disappointed in the majority of the jokes and stuff. It seemed a little half-assed to me. I get why it's popular because if it was released around the right time, it could have caught a lot of wind, but it's not something that I could see myself watching every Thanksgiving like a lot of people do. And um, that's kind of disappointing in itself that it's disappointing.
0: Mr. Payton, what are your initial thoughts on
1: planes, trains, and automobiles? I think it's one of the greatest comedies of all fucking time. Fuck Tony, he's wrong. (laughs) I remember seeing this long ago as one of the regular Comedy Central picks of their movies that they played. And I loved it. I'm a huge Steve Martin fan. I'm a huge John Candy fan. And to have these two together as like a, a buddy traveling comedy is just fantastic. Like, An excellent example of slapstick and the comedy of the time.
0: For uh, when it comes to this film, it's directed by John Hughes, who has been widely considered a teen angst filmmaker. If you look at his run of films. Mm. Uh, with this being kind of his first venture into comedy using Steve Martin and John Candy, do you think he did well as a director moving into
1: this, director and writer, into this type of uh, project? We'll start with you, Mike. I honestly do not give John Hughes any credit for this. Um, I, I don't even think the jokes are particularly well written. It's the delivery. Everything is all about the delivery, specifically Steve Martin. Uh, Steve Martin's facial expressions, the way he can just show emotion as he's delivering his lines, is. St- is just fantastic so no I, I don't give john hughes any credit for that tony what are your thoughts on john hughes adventure into this type of uh,
0: movie release
2: see what you just said there Peyton, is exactly why i'm disappointed in the movie sort of uh the two main actors in this are perfect for their roles and stuff but it's kind of a situation of you get two good actors in a bad script and they make it tolerable instead of, if you would have had two horrible actors in the same movie, I don't think this would be popular at all. I don't think that the movie is good. I think that the principal actors are good. And John Hughes, I agree with you, he doesn't really deserve much credit to this at all.
0: So, you guys have touched a little bit a little bit on the casting in this. Steve Martin and John Candy are obviously the lead roles. Uh, some of the other minor roles that are in there, Michael McKean is a state trooper. Kevin Bacon is a taxi racer uh martin or matthew lawrence this is neil page jr thought that said martin so now i really don't care as much
2: uh, <laughs> yeah i was gonna say i don't remember martin lawrence and,
0: <laughs> and ben stein was at the wichita uh, airport representative so yes. when, it, <laughs> when it comes to casting for this film overall we'll start with you tony how do you feel do you feel that steve martin john candy were perfect for this or could two other people have filled this role
2: Definitely perfect for it. Definitely typecast, too, but that's not a bad thing. Um, You know, people get typecast for sometimes a good reason because they're so good at pulling it off. Like, John Candy is perpetually nice and apologetic all the time in, like, every fucking movie that he's in. (laughs) So if I was supposed to have somebody who's, like, bothersome and too optimistic and it gets on my nerves but I know that they're deep down a good person and I grow to love the guy... John Candy's like one of my go-to examples for that, and Steve Martin is a perfect example of somebody who is a real asshole, but he learns the better of his ways and whatever. He's done that in a bunch of different movies, and come on, if you're going to cast somebody as somebody looking for a cab, you got to go with Kevin Bacon.
0: <laughs>
1: <laughs> uh, Peyton, what was your thoughts on the casting for this film? Absolutely perfect. Uh, Tony really nailed all the points. John Candy is a guy who is nice to the point where it actually gets kind of annoying. So perfect select of the role. And, and I actually think it's kind of funny that you talk about him repeating this role. I'm pretty sure John Candy played this exact same role in Home Alone 2. Yeah. yeah he did. <laughs> a, a guy trying to get home for the holidays, teams up with somebody to help him get there.
2: If you were to tell me, you know, like the, the subreddit fan theories where people... Try to connect things that aren't actually in the movies themselves and stuff. If you were to try to convince me that it is the same guy and he's playing uh, Del Griffith in that, I could believe it.
0: Mm-hmm. Like yeah, he, he stopped he, he being a shower
2: on. curtain salesman and yeah. started, started getting older. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, like I would believe that a hundred percent.
0: So just give <laughs> just give everybody a few facts about the movie before we move into our next set of questions. It was directed, produced, written by John Hughes. Uh, and, of course, starring Steve Martin and John Candy. The music was Ira Newborn, and the cinematography was done by Donald Peterman, edited by Paul Hirsch, and the production company was Hughes Entertainment. Uh, it was oh. distributed by Paramount Pictures and was released November 25th, 1987, with a runtime of 92 minutes. In the box office, it grossed 50, uh, about $50 million. Um, one other thing that comes with uh, the movies that we like to talk about here is our favorite scenes. And what are our least favorite scenes? So, Tony, we'll start with you. What was your favorite moment within a, uh, this movie? Easily,
2: it has to be when they're sharing the hotel room and they wake up realizing that they've cuddled each other, and their reaction to that is so perfect for two guys that so don't want to admit that it was like <laughs> any, anything that, they, that we didn't. <gasps> He's you, like,
0: uh, you, see, you see
2: the Bears game last week? Hell of <laughs> a game. They're, they're going to go all the way. I, I love the fucking back and forth between them, especially that dialogue itself. If they didn't think of that and somebody like John Hughes wrote it, I'll give them credit for it because the uh, succinctness to it of, You see the Bears game last week? Yeah, a hell of a game. Going to go all the way. <laughs> Just <laughs> spitting out, like, Yeah, yeah, yeah you know that. Just quarter pass. You know, it's a really the offense is great, Sierra's like, you know, everybody has heard the same conversation happen from people that are in small talk situations and stuff. And that's a perfect representation of what most guys would do in that scenario. Uh, I laughed hysterically at that part and I actually rewound it and rewatched it again, like right after that had happened just because I was like, man, that's so fucking perfect. (laughs)
0: And what was your least favorite moment or something that you said and eh, well, that well that's just not interesting?
2: It shouldn't be because this is not their intention at all. I'm 100% sure of that. But it's at the very end when Steve Martin uh, is sitting in the train on the way home and he's smiling and thinking about his family. And he kind of comes to the realization of what uh, John Candy's character is actually uh doing here it felt awkward to me it was just a bad directorial choice i think because the shots of him silently laughing and he's thinking about his family and we don't get to know this family like at all it's almost like post-mortem or something mm-hmm. and i don't know it, it's supposed to be like heartwarming and sad and whatever but it was just cringeworthy to me instead so the biggest moment of the film that's supposed to be like a hook for me is the thing that cancels me out the most.
0: Payton, what was your favorite movie uh, moment when it came to this
2: movie? It's <laughs> your uh, favorite movie.
0: <laughs> yeah.
1: Well, my favorite movie is Jurassic Park. And <laughs> uh, my favorite part of this movie is when Steve Martin is at his Steve Martinist. And that is right after he gets to the airport uh, car rental place. Yes. And they sent him to get his car but it's not there. So he has to trek all the way back to the terminal and he's just going through all this crap, sliding down a hill. He loses his hat. There's just all these problems going on. Finally, he gets to the desk and you could just see like the expression in his face. He's been saving it all for this moment. And this cheery-eyed, smiling, freaking prick of a woman, just (sighs) trying to kill him with kindness, but he's not going to have it. And he just lays into her. And after he releases all of his emotion... What does the woman have to say to him? But, well, you're fucked.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Uh, What was your least favorite moment when it came to this movie? If there is one.
1: That, that's a really tough thing to, to say. I mean, Tony's right. They Whatever they try to do, the emotional parts of the movie, I really don't think they hit that. And that's because that's not Steve Martin and John Candy's strong suit. And that was the moment where we really needed to rely on the director and the cinematographer and uh, the the music arrangements. And a lot of them really just didn't come together during those parts. I know there was another part where um John Candy gets – kicked out of the uh, hotel room or or like he's he's not allowed into it because he couldn't afford it so Steve Martin's character just took it himself and he's sitting in the car by himself and he's trying to apologize to his dead wife like oh I did it again I'm a big dummy and it's just like this was supposed to be a really heartwarming scene but it just came across really awkward Mm -hmm. Uh, one thing you did
0: touch base on a little bit there is the uh, the music score and the soundtrack for the movie tony when it comes to the soundtrack uh, the score was done by ira newborn and there's a few other songs in there such as the uh, red river rock which was performed by the british group silicon teens because they're so popular um Woo, silicon <laughs> teens. what they're were your what, they are. <laughs> what were your thoughts on the score for this movie
2: Well, it's been a little while since I watched this and prepped for our podcast and I don't remember too many specifics about the music, but looking at my notes now, the very first thing that I have written down is, and even before the Kevin Bacon scene, is the music is so of its time, Mm -hmm. Uh, which if I'm remembering correctly at why I wrote that note down, it's the music that plays when he's trying to find the cab and it's hardcore 80s. Which is not necessarily a bad thing to an extent. I mean, if you are watching a movie like this for nostalgic purposes, that's perfect. But at the time, it was probably amazing. And now it's, like, laughable. Uh, The music plays a part into why that one scene is one of my least favorites. Because it is a little bit too hokey. And uh, throughout the whole thing, there's no like real positives that I can think of when it comes to the music, other than the fact that if you are looking at it in a nostalgic way that, you know, it's good for that. But, uh, it kind of suffers from the same thing that a lot of eighties movies do where it's so over the top and it's so like, the kind of shit. Like we're just like, wow, I get it. This is a comedy, <laughs> but, uh, eh, you know, it could be worse. So
1: Peyton, what were your thoughts on the musical score and uh, soundtrack for this film? <laughs> Well, there's two of them specifically that stick out, and one of them is like Tony said, a very excellent example of '80s music at the time. And again, I'm referencing the scene where Steve Martin is looking at his car and he's walking back, and he's going through all the problems as he's going through it. And while he's going through that, it's playing one of those like yeah. '80s like <laughs> songs. It reminds me of that one song from Ferris Bueller that's like, "Oh yeah. yeah, bow bow." It reminded me of that, only instead of doing like "Oh yeah," it had sound clips of Steve Martin like yelling. They was like, you're messing with the wrong guy!
2: That was <laughs> awkward as fuck, wasn't that?
1: <laughs> um, but my favorite musical part in the movie is when both of the characters are driving around in their their woody wagon. And Steve Martin's taking a little nap. John Candy's driving. And he's getting into it. And all of a sudden, he pumps this, this like, 50s tune. He's like, do the mess around! And he's, like, jamming out, like, playing the piano on the... uh on the dash. And then eventually like he gets his jacket stuck and that's what leads them to like go into this crazy car accident where they turn into skeletons and stuff, which was an excellent <laughs> effect. <laughs> uh, before we wrap up, I want to go uh, for this
0: movie, the for the movie, for this movie, I can't, why am I blanking out on it? Uh, Tony, what are your final thoughts? And what would you rate this on a one to 10?
2: Well, in general, I could see why people are fans of it if they watched it at an earlier age. Uh, I think this is kind of in the same boat as a lot of movies from the 80s and the uh, 90s, where if you watch it when you're young enough and it can hook you in, then you're hooked for life. You know, I, I will always watch Home Alone when it comes to Christmas time because Home Alone was a movie that I grew up on. Or you know, like the Ninja Turtles movies or the old RoboCop or any of that kind of stuff. Uh, but if you watch it later on in life, I don't think it's going to hit any of those same marks. So it just doesn't work the same. Uh, that being said, I'd probably give it like a six out of 10. It's not a horrible movie or anything like that. It's, you know, got a couple moments here and there that I'll be remembering fondly or whatever. And a lot of the rest of it's just kind of hit or miss or you take it or leave it or whatever. It, it's not something that I would recommend to anybody other than the people that I know love this type of movie.
0: Okay. And Peyton, what were your final thoughts on a score one to 10 on planes, trains, and automobiles?
1: Uh, again, it's a great example of the time of what could be made when you have a lot of things lining up. Uh, John Hughes, was a very big name director. And while I don't think he particularly added a lot as far as quality, he did bring a name, which I think helped get this movie the start off recognition that it needed. Then when you throw in guys like John Candy and Steve Martin, who were two of the it guys at the time, I mean, I I don't even, I don't know present day comedian so i couldn't even think of a good present day example to say it but those two were the big guys steve martin was a massive comedian at the time with snl and his stand-up and he even had like a music album at the time he was huge and john candy was just huge um yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, maybe will
2: Farrell would be one of the more modern equivalents
1: i think will at- Farrell i think that like 10 years ago will Farrell would have been yeah equivalent. i'm saying like now i don't know I don't know wow, who the I'm hell is, idea. but that bow guy that Drew likes. That, that's probably the guy.
2: <laughs> A couple of years ago, Steve Carell.
1: Yeah. Yeah, yeah sure. Go with that. Um, basically, take your two it guys and put them together. Imagine, like, in the mid 90s, if you had Jim Carrey and um, who was the other big comedian at the time? Robin Williams. No, the one who was kind of like Jim, Adam Sandler. Imagine you had Jim Carrey and Adam Sandler pairing together in the mid-90s, how big that would have been. That's essentially what they did there.
2: And Adam Sandler was John Candy's role because he got fat eventually. (laughs) (laughs)
1: Um, Not a perfect movie, but one I definitely recommend anyone to go and check out. It's a good laugh, even if you're not watching around the the Thanksgiving season. I'd never consider it a Thanksgiving movie, even though it does involve it somewhat. It's just a comedy to watch any time of the year. Um, I, I would give it an eight and a half. Very Cool.
0: So, with that being said, we're going to finish up our first movie here on the Four Wheel Movie Club, and we're going to move on to our second, which is another Hughes Entertainment production, uh, Dutch. So if you're listening here on the little YouTubes, make sure you click the next link, and you're going to find out what we're going to say about Dutch. Welcome back to the second video here in our Four Real Movie Club uh, for Thanksgiving theme for the month of November. In this uh, episode video clip that we're going to talk about is Dutch, a 1991 American comedy drama film directed by Peter Feynman, which is his second and last theatrical film after Crocodile Dundee and written by John Hughes. The original musical score was composed by Alan Silvestri. The film stars Ethan Embry as Doyle Standish and Ed O'Neill, who is playing Dutch Dooley, and Joe Beth Williams with a cameo appearance by golfer great Arnold Palmer. Uh, Just as a fun fact, the movie was released in the UK and Australia as Driving Me Crazy. Go figure. Uh, Payne, we'll
1: start with you on this one. What were your initial thoughts on the movie Dutch? Well, I... Didn't really have any expectations originally going into this because I don't even know if I've even ever heard of it. And if I did, it just kind of like passed by and I never thought about it. So the first impression I actually got of it came from Tony, where he told me how awful this movie was. (laughs) So I was like, oh God, here we go. I thought we were going to have... No offense to you, Dace, but how you picked that one crazy summer movie. <laughs> uh, I thought it was going to be another one of those. <laughs> I was like, oh, fuck, <laughs> this is going to be awful. Um, and actually, I was i was pleasantly surprised. It was much better than Tony made me expect it to be. Ed O'Neill, another fantastic actor, very underrated, I think, as a comedian. I think he could be excellently funny. And it, it, the way he just bullied around this punk little kid, just watching him do that for an hour and a half was actually quite enjoyable. Tony, what were your first impressions on the movie Dutch? Uh,
2: it's my least favorite out of this bunch. <laughs> it's not uh, One Crazy Summer bad, but it's not something that I will ever watch again, most likely. Um, the positives that I can say about planes, trains, and automobiles are more in-depth than the ones that I can say for Dutch. Dutch had a couple more, like, probably, let me say, let me put it this way, Uh, Planes, Trains, and Automobiles has more quality layoffs, but less quantity than Dutch does. Dutch, to me, is kind of an easy sell. And I've never been a big fan of slapstick comedy. That's one of the reasons why Planes, Trains, and Automobiles, some of the jokes don't hit me as well. And the same thing with Dutch, you know, the the jokes that are more of the slapstick nature, they got to be really good for me to care about them. And the joke that Peyton's referencing that I mentioned to him that, that gave him the idea that it was like the worst movie ever or whatever is uh, at one point in the movie he, um, Ed O'Neill's character, slips, falls, and his shoe hits him in the head. And to me that's like something that you would see in The Three Stooges. And I hate The Three Stooges. So the points in this movie that weren't slapstick like that I liked. Any of the ones that were like that, for the most part, I could pass on. So uh, this was a very middle ground kind of movie.
0: Uh, One thing we always talk about when it comes to these films is uh, casting. So in the lead roles, we obviously have Ed O'Neill and Ethan Embry. Um, Some of the minor roles are uh, Christopher McDonald as Reed Standish. Uh, E.G. Daly's in it, which gives you a completely different vision of Tommy Pickles. Damn. Um and Arnold Palmer as himself in this. So when it comes to casting, do you feel, and we'll start with you on Tony since uh, it was your least favorite out of the four, do you feel that if somebody else played the lead roles, it would be more interesting?
2: No, I think everybody does a good part for the most part. Um, first off, does Christopher McDonald ever play a good guy?
1: I don't know. Neither does Christopher McDonald. <laughs>
2: I've never seen this dude be anybody but a complete asshole in everything that he is in. So as soon as he showed up as the dad, it was just like, okay, well, the dad clearly has no positive qualities at all. He's Mm -hmm. just, you know, bottom feeder jerk who should get his comeuppance at the end or whatever. The 90s stereotypical hot hookers, you you said it best. I'm not going to look at Tommy Pickles the same way again. I'm going to be hearing that voice and I'm going to be like, oh, the hot chick should not think of that when little kids are, are uh, on the screen, but she was pretty hot, and so was the other one. Uh, back in the time uh, that this came out, if I would have been a teenager, I would have been all over them. And it's,
1: Specifically, they were 80s hot. Yeah, yeah.
2: that's mm. the thing. Now, if I saw them walking on the street, I'd be like, wait. What the fuck's wrong start- with your hair? <laughs> yeah, just had to go through a time machine, what the fuck's happening? But, looking at pictures of what EG Daily looks like now,
0: just look kind of
1: hot,
2: so... Uh,
0: She aged very well.
2: Yeah, credit to her. Um, But uh, Ed O'Neill is at a weird time in this movie where he hasn't completely gotten typecast as uh, his character from Married with Children. And I'm more familiar with him from that than anything else, so I could see little bits and pieces of that coming out, but that's fine because that's the type of character that he is in this. I mean, he is a, a prick, and he is really gruff and edgy and around the edges that you wouldn't really tolerate in most ways. And the same thing for the kid, Ethan Embry, I know more from can't hardly wait. So it was a little bit of a shock to see him be something other than a complete pussy, but he did a good job. I mean, for a little kid that is supposed to be annoying, he's annoying as fuck. <laughs> so, everybody's, uh, as far as the casting side goes, they all pretty much nail what they're supposed to. if anybody is a downside, it would be the mom. Hmm. Mm
1: uh payton what were your thoughts on the casting for this film i uh, aside from ed o'neill i don't know who any of these people are I, mm-hmm. I i if i haven't admitted this before i am terrible with actor names uh mm-hmm. whenever i talk to tony he'll he'll always be talking about movies like oh it has this guy and 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 mm-hmm. i'm like i maybe know one of those guys <laughs> that that that's a maybe like usually mm-hmm. it's a none um when it comes to wrestlers I I, I I know a ton in fact that I might actually outnumber Tony on that one but with actors I don't know shit um, <laughs> freaking so I, I couldn't comment on what any of these other people have done what I'm used to them what I think of them as people I, I think they all perform their roles fine there there was nobody in this where I was like yeah they're not that person and, and in a way that helped because you know I didn't have them typecasted to anything else I just see them as whoever I'm seeing them in this movie
2: you mm-hmm. don't see McDonald as shooter McAvin
1: Oh, I didn't even recognize him without the mustache <laughs> Shoot him or Gavin <laughs>
0: um, Some facts about the movie It had a budget of 17 million What? It did and it the box office didn't even Break five uh, So it's definitely considered a flop It released July 19th 1991 In the middle of summer movies Which probably is why it didn't do well um, it was directed by Peter Feynman, produced by Robert Weissman, written by John Hughes, and, of course, we talked about who stars in it. The music was by Alan Silvestri, uh, distributed by 20th Century Fox, and it has a runtime of 90 minutes. So when it comes to the score of this film, there's one song that really sticks out to me, and it's every time they pull out the damn BB gun. Um, Tony, what were your thoughts on the score and the soundtrack for Dutch?
2: I don't remember any of it at all. Really? So it must not have made uh, an impression positive or negative. What was the thing that was happening with the, the gun?
0: Every time he pulled out the BB gun, there was like this, like... Uh, it's not the song from uh, freaking Ferris Bueller, but it's kind of like that. It like, <laughs> oh, yeah. BB yeah. Gun. It, it's just like this upbeat... Doo-doo, and every time they would pull out the BB... And they would do these eye movements back and forth. Like, oh, you're not going to shoot me. Oh, you're not going to shoot me. And then they finally shoot each other. So... <laughs> That song has always stuck with me, and I don't know why the eye movements, too. Um, but if, like you said, it's not memorable. Peyton, um, what are your thoughts on the soundtrack and score for this movie? Yeah,
1: I'm pretty much at the same spot. I, I got nothing. Absolutely nothing. Sorry. <laughs> cool.
2: uh, it's, it's a shame because Alan Silvestri is good. Mm-hmm. But I guess he, like, phoned it in on this one.
0: Probably. I mean, he probably got $5 million today. Yeah, uh, just put a soundtrack together um <laughs>
2: he's the reason the budget 17 million <laughs> <laughs> They paid him all this money and he's like I don't i just put some shit out there he bangs his fucking keyboard and he's like there you go it's brown, 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 brown.
0: <laughs> uh paid what are your thoughts on uh, what was your favorite moment uh when it comes to the
1: movie dutch hmm i think my favorite part in the movie is when He actually first meets the kid and they're having their whole first interaction and he's kind of like feeling him out and he's realizing like, wow, this kid's a lot worse than I thought he was, but he's not going to get beaten down. He just stays strong on him and by the end, he's walking out with him tied to a hockey stick. (laughs) Uh, What was your least favorite
0: moment if you have one? Mm.
1: Hmm. I don't know. I don't really have one. I guess like, it's it's hard to come up with a least favorite movie in comedies. You know, when you say mm-hmm. a least favorite movie, I guess it's the part where it's not being funny is the easiest mm-hmm. thing to say. Yeah. No, there was no like jokes in this where I groaned at or like felt like we're really stupid. At least no more than I would have expected it to be for an eighties comedy. Sweet.
0: Uh, Tony, what
1: was your uh, high point for this movie?
0: Very, very,
2: very early on, and then it kind of went downhill. But <laughs> when you first meet the little kid, when the audience meets the little kid. And there's the other little kid who's my favorite character, in the whole fucking thing. And he, <laughs> he seems like he's one of these like preppy douchebag kids too. Yet he's got balls on him. He's just like, he calls him shithead. Uh, he says, well at least I have a father. It's like, oh, that's a fucking <laughs> shot. And the best line that he has, have a nice weekend rotting in your pissed off world. <laughs> I was like, yes, this kid's awesome. I want this kid to be in the whole film. And I was so disappointed that he wasn't.
0: Uh, what was your low point for the film?
2: I would say it's the the shoe scene. But there's one scene that really took me out of the movie. And that was the fireworks going off. That mm. went on for way too long. And the joke was already made when they bought the fireworks. You know, you're like, okay, fireworks are going to go off and hurt Ed O'Neill. They're not going to hurt the kid, because that would just be, like, too brutal to have him, like, with third-degree burns and shit. But at some point, either the kid's going to set the bag off, or the bag's going to get set off uh, accidentally, and it's either going to blow something up, or it's going to blow up in the car with them, or it's a guarantee it's going to happen. And they drug that fucker out for, like, what felt like eight minutes especially after they had already made the joke of like it went off and it just keeps going off and not doing anything different. You got this weird music in the background. Ed O'Neill's making these weird faces like it's almost as if they filmed that scene goofing off and then decided to throw it into the movie cuz they needed to pad it an extra couple of minutes or something. That's without a doubt my least favorite scene in the movie.
0: Okay, before we uh, wrap up judge the film, let's get our final thoughts and we'll give it a rating between 1 and 10. Payton, we'll start with you on this one. What are your final thoughts on the movie Dutch and a rating 1 to 10? That was a fairly unoffensive
1: movie. Um, hmm. I, I guess if I had to give it a score, it would be just above middle ground, maybe like a six and a half, maybe a seven. I, I can't give it too high. It's it's nothing exceptional that I'm going to say, go out of your way. If, if it's on, watch it. If, if it's not, don't, don't go out of your way.
0: Uh, Tony, what are your final thoughts on Dutch and a rating 1 to 10? I'd give it a five
2: out of 10 because I don't want to be mean enough to give it a four out of 10 or whatever for a couple of things that I did like in it, like that one kid uh, at the beginning, but it's something I won't watch again. It's not something I'd recommend to anybody. Uh, it really does work well as a movie that a network could put on TV for Thanksgiving day. If they want to just have Thanksgiving movies play, because there's really not that many Thanksgiving movies out there. And this definitely is a Thanksgiving movie. Um, but outside of following that kind of structure, I just didn't think it's really that good of a movie. If you take that out of the Thanksgiving theme that we're doing here, and if this would have been suggested as like one of the four movies, if we were just doing comedy movies,
0: I'd be pissed. <laughs> yeah. You would have yelled at me. <laughs>
2: <laughs> but like, why is this one crazy summer in here too? <laughs>
0: <laughs> so ladies and gentlemen, thank you for joining us on our second part of of the November Thanksgiving Films for 4 Wheel Movie Club. You're watching on the YouTubes, make sure you click over to the link and go on to part three, where we'll be talking about Scent of a Woman. hoo Welcome back to the 4 Wheel Movie Club as we go into part three of November Thanksgiving Films. Today, or this edition, we'll be talking about Scent of a Woman, which was a 1992 American drama, and in some opinions, a comedy, directed and produced by Martin Brest... Eh. That tells story Oh, as a student, has taken a job to assist uh, an blind medical retired army uh, officer who's a dick. The film stars <laughs> Al Pacino, Chris O'Donnell, James Reborn, Philip Seymour Hoffman, and Gabriel Anwar. Uh, it is a remake of Dino Rizzi's 1974 Italian film, I Can't Say the Title. So <laughs> yeah,
2: that's, that's what the name <laughs> of the movie actually is.
0: It's Profumo di Dona. I don't know why I talked like a Mexican sure. when I said it.
2: It's called Black um, Bastard.
0: <laughs> it's adapted by Bo Goldham from the novel. That's another word I can't say. This is unfair. Uh, Il Buio El Il Milo, which in Italian means darkness and honey by Giovanni Arpino. And from the 1974 screenplay by Virgilio Macari and Dino Rizzi. Uh, And the film was directed by Martin Brest. (laughs) Again, funny. Uh, Pacino also went on to win an Academy Award for Best Actor in his performance for this film. Tony, we'll start with you on this one. What was your initial thought to Scent of a Woman?
2: There are two movies on this list that we did that I own, and one of them is Scent of a Woman. Uh, That's a movie that I bought pretty much like right after I had seen it. Uh, And that was when I was maybe... 15 at the time or so which it shouldn't speak much to a 15 year old but i really like this movie um it's not a movie i can just pop on at any time not like a you know terminator 2 or something where i could just you know "Eh, i feel like watching a movie let's just throw a son of a woman on it's too heavy for that but it's definitely a movie that i would recommend to people for the dramatic side of the thing plus the fact that pacino is so fucking funny in it i like this movie a lot
1: a pain what were your initial thoughts on the movie I avoided this movie for a long time, not on purpose. Um, it was just something I never really felt like checking out. Like I always heard it was a fantastic movie. won all this awards. I, I obviously could not avoid that, but it was just not a movie I came around to for one reason or another. This was a reason to finally get into it. And, uh, this is another case of uh, Stand By Me, which I never saw that movie before and watched it for the show. And am very, very happy I did because this movie was amazing uh, on every level. Al Pacino, I think it's the best role of his career. He, he nails it. Um, the the movie has an excellent tone of, like you said, it's both dramatic and funny. It, it, like it swaps between these and the pacing is just perfect. It's, it's an excellent, excellent movie.
0: With this film, as we can tell, the, and I think it's unanimous, that Al Pacino won a—he was one of the best castings that they did, and he won an award for it. When it comes to the other castings, such as a very young Chris O'Donnell uh, as Charlie Sims and really the, the co-star here in the movie, and a young Philip Seymour Hoffman, which, whew, did not realize— I didn't know he was in it, so it kind of caught me off guard when I saw him. Um, how do you guys feel about the casting—and, Payton, I'll go back to you on this one— for the film— with uh,
1: pretty much all the minor stars and the co-star Chris O'Donnell. Well, I'm going to pull back to what I said in the previous section uh, about how I don't know who people are. Mm-hmm. Uh, and again, I had no idea who any of these people were. <laughs> um, Philip Seymour Hoffman, I recognized him only because he died last year. <laughs> <laughs> that's awful. <laughs> like, if, if we had done this before that, I honestly would have had no idea who the fuck he was. Mm-hmm. And that's terrible because I, I I know he's an accomplished actor, and he was great in this. He was great. Um, but I, I just, like I said, I just, I don't know actors. It's just not my thing. So mm-hmm. I, I can't speak. I think everyone did a good job. Um, I, I especially liked the, um, the principal or whatever the hell his name was. Uh, Mr. Trask. Yeah. Also who, uh, passed away, I think last year. He was oh, in that's that's...
0: Independence Day as one of the advisors. He was um,
1: very good for that role. Just like a stuck up uppity suit guy.
0: Yeah. Um, Chris O'Donnell, of course, played Robin, so he went on a downhill spiral after that. Uh, So he pretty much played the same... (laughs) Same role. Yeah, pretty much. Coward. Um, Tony, what were your thoughts on the casting for this film?
2: Uh, It's really interesting watching this movie over different uh, time periods because when I had originally seen it, I had no idea who Gabrielle Anwar is, uh, or was. And then when I eventually started watching the TV show Burn Notice, I was just like, damn it, she looks familiar. So, you know, head over to IMDb, and I'm like, fuck, she was the chick from Set of Woman, okay. And in Burn Notice, she plays this, you know, uh, ex-military tough chick, even though she's, like, frail as hell. And uh, seeing her in this movie, where she's the prim and proper one in a dress instead of uh, tank top and cut off jeans and whatever... uh, that was like, wow, she could play these two different parts probably fine. and Never would have thought about that. So, you know, kudos to her. Uh, definitely um, kudos to Philip Seymour Hoffman, because he is such a prick constantly in this movie. And he's got one of the best lines in the whole thing that really sells the idea of him just being this irreparable asshole, uh, which he might have been in real life, because he pulls this off so well that it's like... I gotta believe that he he's pulling it from somewhere. Uh, and that's the courtroom scene at the end, when he is <laughs> trying to avoid talking, and he goes, I, I mean, why don't you just ask Charlie? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> that is so fucking perfect when it comes to like exactly what that type of a guy would do. So, mm-hmm. if that was his choice, awesome. If it was written in there as that, he pulled it off amazingly. Uh, Chris O'Donnell is annoying. Uh-huh. And... I have seen him in NCIS LA and I've seen him in the two Batman films that he was in and whatever. And I know that this is not his regular speaking voice, but man, the thing annoying about him in this film is how he talks like he has shit in his mouth the entire time. (laughs) He's always just like, Uh, I want to go home for Christmas. (laughs) Come on, Colonel. uh, Just... Just put your gun down. Put your gun down, huh? It's just, just put your gun down. And it's like I want Al Pacino to shoot the fucker <laughs> at some point. But that's kind of what his role is in this. I mean, he's that pissant little fucking kid that has no balls to himself and whatever. So, you know, uh he pulled that off well too, and uh it's good that they have these minor people that are able to play these different characters off somebody like a Pacino. Because if he would have just been by himself, his act would have gotten really tiresome. But when you see him in scenes with, like, the car salesman, who is so stereotypical of that type of a character, and that he's able to, like, charm his way through that, then you get to know his character better from how he reacts to those guys. Because him alone, fuck him. <laughs> You don't want to see any kind of retribution for a character like that, so it rests on the minor characters and the actors do well.
0: Um, just a few facts before we go into the next round of questions: It was distributed by Universal Pictures on December twenty third, nineteen ninety two, just two days before Christmas, with a runtime of one hundred and fifty six minutes. Uh, the budget was thirty one million, and the box office uh, pulled in about one hundred and thirty four million. So they definitely got their money's worth uh, out of thirty one. But the one interesting fact is the runtime 156, which is a pretty long movie. Um, some of the criticism that's been given to this film, uh, specifically Variety's Todd McCarthy, says it goes on nearly an hour too long. Um, and it, they just feel that there's too much given to it. Tony, I'll ask you this first. Do you feel that the runtime was entirely too long for this movie, that they could have probably given the same message in a shorter amount of time?
1: Yeah,
2: you know, they could have. Uh the movie doesn't really get started until they leave. Mm -hmm. And the whole setup with Charlie, you need some kind of setup, but it's not strong enough to justify how long they spend on it. And then at the same time, the movie slows down once they get back. It's really the whole trip is the good chunk of the movie. And then, you know what actually it reminds me of? It reminds me of Full Metal Jacket, where everybody's got so much praise for the beginning of it, And then nobody remembers anything about the war. And I think pretty much everybody, if you're praising this movie, you're praising from the moment that he meets Al Pacino to the moment the court scenes start. All the other kind of stuff is a little bit extraneous. Outside of a couple gems here and there, like you know, the saving point of the beginning of the film is the one line from uh, uh, Philip Seymour Hoffman's character to set him up where he's like, you're going to you going home to fucking Idaho. I mean fucking Oregon. <laughs> so yeah, there's little things peppered in throughout, but they could have trimmed down a lot, I think. And maybe not an hour, that's a little drastic.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: But they could have maybe taken about twenty minutes out and it probably would have been better.
1: Payne, what were your thoughts on the runtime? It was a little long. Um, I'm a person who doesn't necessarily mind longer movies, especially if I'm able to watch them in parts. If I'm not in a theater or something like that, I can handle it easy, easily. Um, you know, I, I think they could have cut it shorter and it would have gotten the same message. Do I think it would have been better? I don't think so. I, I think they got just the right time to get everything they wanted across.
0: Hmm. Um, one, one thing that kind of like when I was watching the film, and I literally just watched it moments before this podcast, Um, when it comes to the reason why they're on, I guess, trial at the end of the movie for being witnesses that won't talk, the whole expulsion thing, for the, I enjoyed this movie thoroughly, but for whatever reason, it just didn't sit well with me on why they were being pressured. Mm -hmm. Um, Peyton, I'll start with you. How did you feel about like the whole reason of why
1: he's in trouble? Yeah, it didn't really all add up. They're they're being put on trial in front of the whole damn school just because they were present when some old lady was walking by and they saw a ladder. Mm -hmm. Like, these guys most likely had absolutely nothing to do with what had went down that night. And to try to, like, force an example out of these guys, like I said, it it made that headmaster look like a major dick.
0: Mm -hmm. Uh, Tony, what were your thoughts on the reasoning behind uh, the trial?
2: Very weak. And maybe the reasoning behind cutting the movie short isn't the best way to go about it. Maybe it's just it needed one more rewrite. And they could have come up with a stronger message, like the basic idea of Pacino's character being so outspoken and so angry, but he needs to learn how to tone himself down and uh, kind of reassimilate back into the world versus... Chris O'Donnell's character, who has no fucking anger behind him and he needs to stand up for himself or whatever, that's solid. But the crux of the problem being what it was doesn't really illustrate the point that it needs to. They could have done something, and I can't really speak to what a better alternative would have been without sitting down and thinking about it for 20 minutes or something. But uh, you know, maybe the circumstances of the situation would have been better if it would have been more than just a simple prank. Like maybe they were hacking in, I'm not hacking in, but maybe they did something when it comes to their grades. And that is more of a reason for expulsion. Maybe there's something with like, uh, the scholarship is hit a little bit more out of know. There's, there's something that is a disconnect. Mm-hmm. And I think that they, they took this idea that they had on an outline of like Charlie, Needs to either talk or not, and then they were like, uh, "We'll figure it out," and they kind of just rushed it and whatever. So they could have definitely done something better.
0: Mm-hmm. Another uh, infamous thing that's come out of this movie, and it's even won an award for being one of the best quotes of all time. <laughs> Hoo-ha.
2: That's he sad that, that that can win for like one of the best quotes. Yeah. <laughs> one word. <laughs>
0: He says it so many times throughout the movie, and there's even that one scene where he's just getting insulted left and right for being a crazy, crazy mother. mother. Um, What the the line is obviously something that's impactful. Why do you think this one line? We'll start with you, Tony. Is so influential, and of course will be said by me on several different podcasts going forward. (laughs) Uh, Why does he? Why do you think that line has such an impact?
2: Two reasons. One. It's simple and people love simple. That's why the Daniel Bryan yes chants are over and why uh, the most simple marketing, like just do it from Nike catches on. And two, it's fun as fuck to say because people love doing their impressions and stuff. And that's just, you know, it's just a, a grunt. Just, do ah! <laughs> you know, you could say it in any situation And apparently it's okay, because that's what Pacino did throughout the entire fucking movie. (laughs) So you don't have to wait until somebody gives you a reason to do it. Now, if if you went around doing it, of course, it's enough time's gone by since this movie's come out where people wouldn't understand what the fuck's the matter with you. (laughs) But, uh, you know, for the people that do know this movie, you could say hooah whenever, and they're just going to go and laugh and probably continue doing it. And I... I'm worried about the podcasts that are coming up in the future where somebody else says a hoo-ah back to you days where it's just
0: hoo-ah, hoo <laughs>
2: Back and forth over and over again. But
0: I'm known for my one-syllable outbursts. So that's, <laughs> that's what I have banked my career on. Uh, Peyton,
1: what are your thoughts on the uh, hoo I think it's been incredibly overblown. <sighs> he He only he says it, like, what, seven times in the whole fucking movie? He doesn't even say it that much. Yoni know does more. He does that, uh, hey! <laughs> <laughs> he does that way, way more. Um, it's fun to say, I think that's why it's caught on, but by no means do I see it as like a defining line for, I mean, with all the, the actual like in-depth quotes about freaking life and struggle and all that, then he makes, we're really going to say who is the big takeaway <laughs> from it. No, that,
0: that was my takeaway.
1: <laughs> but I'm also, like I said, one syllable days. That's what they call me.
0: <laughs> um, <laughs> Uh, what we're going to do is we're going to wrap up now with the son of Woman. So, of course, we're going to get our final thoughts and then rank from 1 to 10. We'll start with you, Sony.
2: I love the Thanksgiving dinner scene. That was great. It's great to see somebody ripping into him instead of having him rip into everybody else. Uh, the women's speech, awesome. That's a great quotable thing, just tits, big ones, little ones, nipples, staring at you like secret searchlights. (laughs) It really showcases what kind of a pervert he is. Uh, Another great line that he's got in the film that uh, really speaks volumes is, I'm no fucking good and I've never been. That kind of hits you hard. Uh, But the hardest hit thing out of the entire film uh, for me is probably the oak room scene. And how glib he is about committing suicide. He's just, I'm gonna fucking blow my brains out. Like, oh, you know, these roles are fucking great. Like uh if you know anybody who is really legitimately suicidal, it's different than when they're the over-the-top, like, I'm gonna kill myself, I'm gonna do it, kind of a thing. But that is also what makes the the gun scene so powerful because the difference between the two of them is what happens in real life. He doesn't want to kill himself in that scene, so that's why it's a whole big, just get out of here! I, fuck you! I'll, I'll kill you then, you know. Like, uh, Pacino plays both of those scenes perfectly well, and when you combine them together with the Thanksgiving dinner scene, even though I'm not picking a favorite scene here because you know it's three, but uh, that's the best thing I can say about this movie is you give him those three anchor points and he really showcases you why somebody in this position would want to kill themselves and how they get out of it uh as far as my negatives go the beginning and the end like i had said they're slow they take a while to get to the points and everything and they're kind of lagging but the worst thing is the incredibly long cheers and the standing applause at the end. That would never fucking happen. <laughs> I don't care how uh, positive a situation it is for Charlie. The whole student body isn't going to be as thrilled about it as he is. So that was just over the top, silly. But I give this movie a 7.5 out of 10. And sometimes I give it an 8, half, Sometimes I'll give it a little bit less, depending on my mood. But it's a movie that I'm really glad i watched at that kind of an age as a teenager where uh you know you are gonna watch more like stupid comedies and silly action films and whatever and you need a good movie like this to show you that life changes when you're a kid and you'll reach a point where these kind of things do kind of affect you so um i definitely recommend it for Anybody of any age except for little kids because they're not going to fucking understand it, but uh, especially people around Charlie's age.
0: Good movie, Payne. What were your final thoughts and rank from one to ten on *Scent of a Woman*?
1: It's a fantastic film. I think it's a must-watch for any cinema fans. Um, obviously, it's not something you can watch anytime. I believe Tony said it's not something you could just pop on like a Terminator when you're just sitting there needing something to have your eyes on. If you got two hours and you're ready to absorb something really special and see a class performance by Al Pacino, this is the one to definitely check out. Uh, And his final score, uh, I'll give it a nine. Very cool.
0: Ladies and gentlemen, that has been Scent of a Woman here on the Four Wheel Movie Club and our Thanksgiving November films. If you're watching, well, you are watching on YouTube, make sure you click the link and go to part four Where we will talk about Grumpy Old Men, the film. That's what they say on Wikipedia. So stay tuned. Go to episode four. You're gonna find out. And welcome back to the last segment of November's Four Real Movie Club, where Uh, we—wow, I squeaked! Four Real Movie Club, where we talk about Thanksgiving films for this month. We're gonna be talking about Grumpy Old Men, which is a 1993 American romantic comedy film starring Jack Lemmon. Walter Matthau and Anne Margaret, also having Burgess Meredith, Daryl Hannah, Kevin Pollak, Katie Sagona, Ozzie Davis, and Buck Henry. It was directed by Donald Petrie, and with the screenplay written by Mark Stephen Johnson, who also wrote the sequel *Grumpier Old Men* in '95. The original musical score was composed by Alan Silvestri, and this was the sixth film starring both Jack Lemmon and Walter Malthow, and their first on-screen pairing since 1981's Buddy Buddy. Peyton, we'll start with you. What was your initial thoughts on Grumpy
1: Old Men? Well, I saw this in theaters when I was a very, very young child. What what year did you say this came out? 93? 93. So I had to have been seven years old. Wow. Um, And I loved it. I thought it was just hilarious. Just these old guys, like, cutting, cutting wise on each other and, like, just being smart asses um watching it now it doesn't hold up quite as well it's still very funny it's it's actually a little bit more depressing than it was (laughs) then.
0: tony what were your initial thoughts on grumpy old man
2: i'm in the same boat i love this movie uh and it's the other one that i own uh i uh Actually, after watching this, I watched Grumpier Old Men because I own that too. And I was just like, I want to watch, you know, the second one uh, now that I watch this one again. I watch it every couple of years and my perspective changes a little bit as time goes on. I totally agree. It's depressing compared to what it was when I was a little kid seeing it in theaters because, you know, when you're a little kid, you're paying attention to the jokes of like throwing the fish in the car and stuff, not like the magnitude of getting old and being sad over the loved ones that have gone by and all this other kind of stuff. But that's something that I didn't appreciate then that I appreciate now. Um, This is one of those movies that I go to if I'm in a particular mood where I want to learn something that I already know the answer to. It's really kind of a tough way to say that, but uh, there are certain movies and – to a lesser extent TV shows and to an even lesser extent music. Cause I'm just not as big of a, a music and TV fan as I movies that, uh, if I'm like sad, I'll watch a type of movie. Or if I'm in a really good mood, I want to watch a really good comedy to keep the mood going or whatever. And if I'm struggling with the idea of being older and what's going to happen in the future, or whatever grumpy old man's a good movie for me to watch to, to kind of, Feel a little bit better, but not just ignore the problems and stuff. And, uh, the jokes are good. The representation of the old people is rock solid in the movie. I just, I love this.
0: So when it comes to casting, we'll stay with you, Tony, Jack Lemon, Walter Mathel, they are, they are a duo that have been in several films together. How did you feel about the casting when it came to this movie?
2: Uh, they're so Perfect there are you couldn't have gotten anybody else to play these parts um and a lot of the other characters too uh and margaret is somebody i'm not too familiar with but she plays that kind of character that i could see them you know falling for her at their age or uh burgess meredith being the fucking uh great-grandfather of the little kid in the film. is oh man he is such a dirty old bastard and uh the casting is just amazing. From the very first scene uh, and their reaction of you know, Morning Dickhead, it's perfect. You If you would have had two random older people other than Jack Lemon and Walter Matthew, they wouldn't have been as comfortable with each other, I think, to be able to pull this off and uh, have that kind of comfort level between the two of them because they're at odds throughout the entire film, but you know that they're friends. And the only way to really pull that off, unless you're just a spectacular enough actor with a spectacular enough script, is to have a friendship with people. Um, Scrubs is a TV show that works so well because JD and Turk on the show are damn near lovers because of how close of friends they are. And Donald Faison and Zach Braff are that close in person, and it shows. And that's something that Jack Levin and Walter Matthau bring to it.
0: And of course, Christopher McDonald's in this movie as well. So. And
2: again, he's a villain <laughs> that he is a fucking dick in everything. I swear to God.
0: Uh, Peyton, what were your thoughts on the casting for Grumpy Old Men?
1: Fantastic. Uh, Tony pretty much nailed it. Those those two older guys have been working together for decades, longer than we've been alive. And that type of chemistry just pops up with them. Uh, they make the movie again. I, I do not give any credit to anyone who wrote the movie or anything like that. It's all on those two guys.
0: Well, just to give everybody a little, fa- a few facts about the movie. It released Christmas Day in 1993 with a runtime of 103 minutes. The budget was about 35 million, and it almost it, well it doubled at the box office, hitting about 70 million. Um, when it comes to this film, uh, like you said, the the duo is really what sells it, and it was good enough to uh, warrant a sequel. Uh, Jack Lemmon and Walter Matthau have been paired together through the decades, and like you said, longer than we've been alive. They're and I think it's safe to say that their, their on screen presence is rival. It's probably one of the best. Now, when it comes to filming, and Tony, you touched a little bit on it, um, when you're doing these series and these movies and such, these the pairing just playing off each other. How much of this do you think was scripted or improv when it came to these two guys, Tony? I
2: think for the most part, it was scripted but that they had a little bit of breathing room to play around with. And uh, one of the scenes, uh, at the end, uh, when they're going through their, uh, blooper reel sort of that shows that they had, did have a little bit of flexibility is when <laughs> Burgess Meredith is talking yes. about all the different ways of saying that, uh, one person's gonna fuck the other one and uh, you know he's a uh, hilarious at the whole thing for that kind of stuff saying it's butt cold outside which i said about seven times after i've seen this movie uh recently and the whole did you mount her and whatever uh but my favorite out of all of them is he's gonna take the skin boat to tuna town <laughs> that is amazing uh they do this again in the sequel and there's a scene where he plays around with the idea of flirting with the, the mother of the love interest in the sequel. And man, he just spits them out back and forth of like, you know, well, you're Italian. You want to come and let me show you my cannelloni and you want me to give you the, the, the hot sausage and whatever. And he, he goes on and on and on and on. And, uh, you know, you can see that they had a little bit of breathing room to play around, but they, probably kept to a pretty specific script and i wouldn't be surprised if a lot of the gems in the film that come out as you know like the the quick one-liners like he's straight as a grizzly's dick are probably improv <laughs> but at the same time i think that the overall structure was probably what they followed more than anything
0: else uh payton what were your feelings do you feel like these two went
1: off track a little bit or maybe they just stuck to the script I think it was a little bit of both. I think they had a lot of very experienced people on there, and I think they probably had a script. And if I had to take a guess, I would think they did the method where they did a run where they stuck to the script, and then they just kept doing runs where they let it get a little looser each time.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: So I I think they probably did that. They just picked their best cuts.
0: Yeah, it definitely. When you have a pairing like that, and for those of you that watch the league, they walk in with uh, an idea and they pretty much say, "All right, just go," because these guys play well off of each other. And Whenever you have that type of uh, relationship, like Tony had said, it, it usually produces a better product. Um, when it comes to this movie, Peyton, what was your favorite movie? Uh, favorite moment?
1: One uh, takeaway from this film? Mm. Now, forgive me because I can't remember if this is from the first one or the the sequel because I watched them both as well. The the fishing boat where they catch the fish. And it's like pulling them all over the lake. That's the sequel. That's the sequel. Well, fuck. <laughs> <laughs> um, hmm. I don't know. I, I guess the, really they all kind of blend together. Because, you know, it's all just them doing something and shouting insults at each other. Like, the thing that it sticks out to me the most is when they're shoveling snow and shouting insults at each other.
0: <laughs> Tony, what was your uh, high point when it came to this movie?
1: Well, speaking
2: of insults, my favorite line in the entire film is right right at the scene where they're talking about how uh, Chuck had died, which uh, one of the things I can really praise about this movie is I love that they hit the nail on the head when it comes to old people talking about the best ways for people to die. And they're like, oh, you know, lucky bastard because he died in his sleep and all that other kind of stuff. Their relationships are really genuine here. Uh, even like with the sex jokes like, you know, I haven't had sex for 15 years. They do a lot of that stuff and they really, really nail it. But my favorite line out of both the films put together is in that scene where uh, Jack Lemon says, you know, you would have known that Chuck would have died if you weren't such a shitty friend. And uh, Walter Matthau's response is, hey watch your mouth you dumb friggin swede (laughs) I love how fucking amazing though. like it's just he turns so like fuck you buddy and instead of just saying go fuck off it's watch your mouth you dumb friggin swede old people and their uh, ethnic slurs and the fact that they don't realize that you shouldn't say things like that without offending you know an entire race of people and stuff (laughs) that is amazing i love that line and i've said that line to people throughout the years ever since i you know rewatched this as a teenager from haven't seen it as a little kid and stuff and uh it it obviously doesn't get the response from people like it does in the movie and stuff but i just love that you you dumb friggin' sweet (laughs)
0: um tony we'll stay with you on this one it's filmed in the twin cities and around wintertime most of it how do you feel when is it not winter time in the Twin Cities <laughs> that, that, exactly? Do you feel that if this movie was moved down to like uh, Texas or Florida, Florida where a lot of old people go after they, uh, they they've done their time in the north, that it would have changed some of the how the film was done?
2: Like uh, filming wise or like the like
0: script impacting the script and how like some of the setting up jokes and things like that or maybe their moods.
2: Yeah, I think that this would have been a little bit more jovial, and maybe that would have been for the better, maybe for the worse, I don't know, but I like how it isn't, because I think that there is more of a chance that you can get silly when it comes to happier than you are when it comes to sadder, and again, to kind of hit the same mark as what I had said before, if you've got a movie like this where it's in the cold and, you know, they've got uh, simple things like they're shoveling snow, like it's nice to see old people not doing crazy things. And I'm not a big fan of slapstick stuff. And if they would have had something more along the lines of like, it's funny that old people are at the water park and they're, they've got like the stupid flippers on or they've got a weird bathing suit on or whatever, that kind of stuff bothers me. And if they would have gone that route, it would have been a movie that I wouldn't be as big of a fan of. But seeing uh, the more reserved side of things, and uh, jokes like the fact that they had the uh, the fish, and you know uh, they gotta like think a little bit more for them to an extent. I think that that is a byproduct of them being in that situation, and it's a little bit more true to a lot of different life too, because a lot of people go to Florida and they you know they retire there and they die there and whatever, but. Not everybody does, obviously, or else Florida would just be an entire uh, retirement home. And for the people that are not living in, like, retirement homes or communities that really cater to those, it is a little weird to see them out in public doing normal things. And this movie, you know, has them walking by houses that are filled with uh, vibrant families at Christmas night. And Jack Lemon's, you know, Walking from the shit in the whole bar with his old friends, cause they got nothing better to do in this town than to fish or drink and cook TV dinners and whatever. You know there' there's nothing glamorous about it. And I like that about that. So maybe it would hit better with the comedic side, but it definitely wouldn't hit better for the sad side of things.
0: paid more to your thoughts on uh, filming well, not the filming itself, <laughs> but the location used
1: in the story. Uh, that's very fitting i mean like you say it keeps a little bit more dreary there i don't know about you guys i've actually had the displeasure of visiting the twin cities area oh yeah Um, especially in the winter especially in the winter yeah i went there um in january it was bitter very very bitter uh tough to get around uh (laughs) much more enjoyable to stay indoors as much as possible so for this movie to be depressing enough to be about all these old people and dying and all that shit, and then to have it set in a place where the skies are always gray and there's <laughs> snow everywhere, it, it did not help that fact whatsoever. Uh, but maybe that was the tone they were going for, because like I said, this movie really does blur the lines of something that's supposed to be funny and not funny.
0: Cool. Uh, what we'll do now is we'll get our final thoughts on it and give it a rating 1 to 10. Peyton, we'll start with you.
1: Very, very funny movie. Well worth seeing. I would recommend it seeing it at least once. I don't know if it's something I would tell everyone to go out there and get into their collection. I personally liked it. I mean, I have a lot of nostalgia attached to it. Uh, if you are unfamiliar with the careers of Walter Mathau and Jack Lemmon, definitely the staple one to go and check out and get your feel for these guys, even though this is like the <laughs> twilight of their careers. <laughs> it's the one to check out. Um, so definitely highly, highly recommend it. I'll give it an eight and a half. Tony, what are your final thoughts
0: and rating of grumpy old, men, or grumpy old Men?
2: Grumpy Old Men's better than Grumpier, I think, by the way. <laughs> but I do like Grumpier Old Men. And it's a shame that they couldn't do Grumpiest Old Men. That would have been a great yeah. trilogy. Uh, I love this movie uh, so much. It's a movie that I would love to show my kids eventually, uh, whenever I would have kids. Just a film that really speaks to genuine relationships and it's something that you don't see in a lot of different movies because everything likes to be over-sensationalized. But the fact that you've got a character like uh, Jack Lemons, John, uh, that he can be friends with somebody that he is a bitter enemy with because that's what a lot of friendships are in real life, especially with like crankier, crotchety older people. But at the same time, you never see him in this or grumpier old men take that out on Kevin Pollock's character, Jack or Jake. Uh, A lot of relationships like that in this movie are the things that I love about this because uh, you've got the Chucks and the um, Ariels and everybody kind of fits in the way that they should in real life. Uh, A lot of positives with this that I didn't see in some of the other ones. Uh, Alan Silvestri's music is great in this uh it's particularly the sad scenes when um you know you think that jack lemon's gonna die and uh when you find out that chuck has died and everything that little couple of notes that they play are better than anything else that's in uh the soundtrack for dutch i think um and i also kind of liked the idea of this being in our group for the thanksgiving because plane trains and Automobiles* is. Great when it comes to you got to get home, you got to meet, eat dinner with your family and, you know, the family message and stuff. Perfect for Thanksgiving for that. Dutch, really good when it comes to the idea of who do you want to spend your Thanksgiving with. Son of a Woman, the alternative you have nobody to uh, spend Thanksgiving with. And for this one, what I kind of liked about it that goes differently than the uh, the three of them, Uh, Thanksgiving is a part of this movie but it's not a Thanksgiving movie it's about everyday life and they factor Thanksgiving into it and they transition into Christmas which is a good way for us to transition into the Christmas movies later on but uh, they kind of point out like uh, Ariel mentions if John were to die then she wouldn't have any holidays to look forward to because that's like going to ruin Christmas except for Thanksgiving. And I'm not really crazy about Turkey because that doesn't matter in the grand scheme of things. It all matters of your relationships with people. And again, the relationships with everybody in this movie is just uh, perfect for what they are. You've got two families that are connected through both hatred and love. And uh, I I could go on and on and on about it. Uh, It's probably one of my top 10 favorite comedies of all time. And I'd give it an eight out of five, uh, eight and a half out of ten.
0: Very cool, ladies and gentlemen. That has been the Four Real Movie Club November with Thanksgiving theme. So what we're gonna do right now before we uh, sign off for the evening is go around the horn to see what everybody's got going on. We'll start with you, Mister Payton.
1: Well, I hope everyone enjoyed another edition of the Four Real Movie Club. Stay tuned to all that and all the other awesome shows on Fanboys Anonymous and MegapowersRadio.com. Lots of things always going on across both places that are good for your ears, your eyes, whatever you may want to get pleasure with.
0: <laughs> <laughs>
2: going to take that the wrong way.
0: <laughs> I did. That's why I'm giggling like a schoolgirl. Uh, Tony, what do you got going on?
2: A lot of things for the nose side of that. <laughs> I've been working on that. <laughs> uh, I've got the typical kind of stuff. Obviously, you guys should check out everything going on with Fanboys Anonymous. And if you're a wrestling fan, like uh, you liked a couple of the jokes that we mentioned throughout this podcast, then go to smartoutmoment.com for all the other A Mango Tree kind of stuff. There's links all over the place, so stay tuned for that. And uh, thanks for watching, everybody.
0: Sweet. Make sure you check out our Four Real Movie Club next year, uh, next month where we'll be talking about Christmas films such as Jingle All the Way. Uh, and make sure you check out where we're actually planned for the, of the month of May. So thank you guys for tuning in to the 4 Real Movie Club. And all you film watchers out there, keep on watching.
1: At no point in your rambling, incoherent response were you even close to anything that could be considered a rational thought. I'm too for this. Good day, sir! You stay classy, San Diego. Rose...
0: Well,
1: we're going, we don't need roads. Frankly, my dear, I don't give a damn. I'm finished. That'll do, people. I'll go.
0: Hasta la vista, baby. Hey,
2: everybody! We're all gonna get laid!
1: You're still here? It's over. Go home.